This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Weekend Podcast. In this episode, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and so much more. Big news this week, not just in New York City, but beyond Amazon deciding to not proceed with its planned second headquarters in Long Island City. Right, Jason. It got so much opposition from residents and politicians, so it backed out. We caught up with Gene Munster on that story. And Jason, we also caught up with the founder of Akamai Technologies, Tom Layton. He has been around for a long time, has seen a lot of technology cycles. What I loved, and they're well known for cybersecurity and all that good stuff, but he talked about blockchain and working with a major financial institution, really putting it to use. It was mind-blowing for me because I think I actually finally understand the blockchain. Good stuff. Plus, it's the real estate double issue focusing on the biggest trends in real estate. Fair to say I've been waiting for someone to kind of write this story. Uh, It's a very personal one. It involves buying a new home and running into a snag over solar. Right. Who knew? And I feel like we see these ads so much, whether it's on Twitter, on television, people coming to your door and pitching solar. It appeals to our better angels in some (laughs) ways. Uh, Esme Dupre, she had that experience. She wrote the story. Dan Ferrara edited it. He's here with us uh, in New York. So give us the contours of this story, Dan. Well, Esme's particular story was that she went to buy a home, her first home. She was very excited about it and was very excited about the fact that it had solar panels on the garage because, like most of us, she was excited about an opportunity to... to have a to, green moment, to, right? To, yeah, to have a green moment. Help to Earth. join the solar yeah. revolution, yeah. To, to take one more home off the grid or to be, to be part of that. Right. What she learned was that the solar system did not come with the house. However, the obligation... The 20-year lease that the previous owner had had just begun. She would have to assume that lease, that obligation, when she bought the house, if she were to buy the house. Well, there are a lot of complications, including the fact that the person she bought from had an extraordinary amount of electronic equipment and had a very high electrical bill. And so she would have had to assume that that electrical bill, which was much in excess of what she was using currently and what she anticipated using. And the whole thing seemed strange to her. And so as a journalist, she just started looking into into the nature of this business model, which is called third-party owner solar. Right, because I would just be like, I mean, I would want the solar, right? Because I would feel like I was doing the right thing for the environment. But if you feel like, I don't want that contract, so just come and take the equipment, but it's not that easy. Right, because the the solar itself is tied to the title of the home. Mm -hmm. So if Esme were to buy the home, she would have to take on the responsibility. If she were to sell the home before the 20-year contract expired or 18 and a half years left on it, the next seller would have to assume the contract. Everyone down the line would have to. There's a there are a lot of peculiarities and uh, particularities about uh, this particular story. One of which is California and some of the laws that are on the books and some of the requirements that the state has made for homeowners going forward. Every new home in California after this year with some very limited exceptions has to have solar on the roof. So then the question is going to be, what's the nature of that? Financial arrangement. If you're in a position to buy the buy a solar system outright, put it on your roof. That is, that's unequivocally a good for you economically. In addition to the other goods we're talking about, if you don't have the money to put it on right now, you might engage with again one of these third party third party owner or TPO companies. The largest of which the one Esme's was dealing with, which is called Sunrun. Yeah. Right. And so tell us about that company because one of the great bits of reporting here is that Esme being the great journalist she is, gets right to the CEO and hears it straight from her. This has been a very successful company and has really taken advantage of this, I'm going to say it again, this sort of zeitgeist, you know, toward wanting to do right by the world. Right. So, well, 
because of the because of our tax structures in this country, solar is very complicated here. In other countries, people overwhelmingly buy solar systems, and they're able to do that because the government supports it in a in a in a, in a simple manner. You want to you want to buy the stuff and put it on your home. They will pay you for that. They pay they'll pay you in subsidies up front. They will give you rebates immediately. In our country, if you if you're in a position to do that, then uh, the system on the roof of Esme's house was in the, worth in the neighborhood of fourteen thousand dollars. If the homeowner, the deceased homeowner had bought it outright, it would have been a really, a really good deal. He would have then been able to claim a tax credit equal to 30% of the cost of the system the next April, right. whenever that was. Claiming a tax credit is always going to be less appealing than simply getting paid, right? So that's one reason, in addition to the size of the credit, that solar, that third-party solar Solar owned by somebody else is something more popular here. It really doesn't – it's really not prominent in, in other countries. But this model, too, was also helping Sunrun's success, right, in terms of how right. they did it in this leasing. Right. It's a financial engineering story. Right. Right. So Sunrun will come to your home and they will put $14,000 worth of equipment on your roof and then you'll pay them on a monthly basis. You'll pay them – either more, a little more or a little less than you would have paid your, your traditional utility. That's one of the tensions in the story. It turned out in this instance, it was a little, little, it was not actually a bargain. Right. What Sunrun does is it has investors. It, it collects thousands and thousands of these leases, of course, and, and with, with each of them, the tax credit. Yeah. And it creates cash flow and it creates tax credits, which it can then sell to investors. So again, it's a, it's a real complicated financial engineering. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a genius thing. Well, and it allows them in many ways to at least give the appearance that you're going to save money. And as you right. say, what Esme discovered here was that she did the math on all of it. She did all the math and, yeah. and, and realized, and you alluded to this earlier on, that for her it wasn't going to work even right. the same way it would for the previous. Well, owner. look at it this way: Sunrun can size the the system they put on your house according to your consumption. The next person might have different consumption yeah. habits. The next person might have them different again. Right. But the 20-year commitment doesn't change. That's editor Dan Ferrara. And I have to say, this Sunrun story, Carol, it's one of my favorites uh, in the issue this week. Esme Dupre, she's so smart. I feel like this is a story that needs to be told because I think we're all trying to understand, you know, when you put solar panels, what does it mean if you buy a home that's already got them? Um, so many of the details worked out. It's a very personal story and certainly a must read. So, Jason, there are more luxury branded residences than ever before, and they are apparently uh, in demand more than ever before as well. And you're talking about some really well-known brands, high-end luxury brands lending their name. All right. So I was reading this story over the weekend, and the thing that caught my attention, you know, it's these moments where you're reading something and you say to the family, like, all right, this is something we need, which is <laughs> an apartment where your Porsche can take its own elevator up to be displayed in your apartment. Yeah, Max Chafkin is here <laughs> to tell us how we can do that. Hey, hey guys. Uh, the term is sky garage. Uh, that is the, uh, Sorry. that is what Sorry we is. got it wrong. Um, and this is a, a feature in, um, I think, I believe it's the penthouse apartment of the Porsche design tower in Miami. And as you said, uh, this is part of a kind of weird and, and amusing and maybe compelling trend in real estate where uh, brands that are not necessarily real estate brands right. are slapping their names on high-end real estate and getting, you know, huge premiums. I think in the story, um, the writer says it's about 30% of a premium on, on what you'd otherwise get if it wasn't, for instance, the Armani apartments. So, I mean, like from the minute you walk in, whether it's Armani or Aston Martin or Porsche, I mean, you're just surrounded by the brand, right? 
Yeah. And I think, you know, it kind of makes sense depending on more or less sense, depending on which brand you're talking about. So I think the idea of being surrounded by Armani um, maybe makes a little bit more sense than being surrounded by a Porsche. I think the idea of living in a Porsche, um, <laughs> d- I don't know. It doesn't Porsche totally make sense Porsche towels work to me. for me. But it, Just saying. But um, uh, we, we met, a, uh, we met the, the man who lives in the apartment with the Sky Garage. It has yeah. not just one bay for your car. It actually has four different ones. So you can be staring at, a, a, you know, your Bentley or whatever uh, as you uh, turn in for the night. It becomes and, part of the art, right, of like your living room. Yeah, absolutely. If you're really into cars, it, it totally makes sense. And I think what we're seeing here is, you know, there's been this amazing amount of excitement and, and sort of intense interest at the high end in, in the real estate markets, especially in in a handful of places. And, you know, developers are naturally doing kind of what developers do is try to find ways to, to get people to spend a little bit more money to, to, to create, yeah. I guess, the perception of value in one of these super high end apartments. Well, and this is, I guess, the natural evolution, but certainly the evolution of something that has become quite popular, it seems, with the Four Seasons and Mandarin Oriental, who have done a pretty masterful job of creating these high-end luxury residences in very attractive places in cities and all over the world that really does have that brand, that quality of service, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think these are of a piece. I mean, the 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 what what the sort of analysts are saying is that the Armani residence is is kind of the same trend as the Four Seasons or Mandarin Oriental. These are quote unquote unquote branded residences. And you know, it, it, it does make some sense that you would try to have you know, real estate is inherently local, but we do have these giant global brands, and yeah. it kind of makes sense that at some point some of these brands would try to, you know, go into real estate. Well, and I, I also think, you know, in terms of real estate, you're just trying to figure out ways to distinguish yourself from everything that's out there. There's been a fair amount of building, right? And so what sets it apart? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what What's kind of interesting is you're seeing this not just in places like Dubai. I mean, I think we think of this as being kind of a, a, a UAE type style, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but of course it's it's happening in the U.S. It's also happening in places like Manila. I, I believe it's, it's either Armani or Versace has a um, you know a Manila tower and Versace, Versace, Versace. and and you know the apartments are uh, relatively reasonable. I mean, you can have a, a three bedroom for uh, about, about three hundred thousand dollars, which I'm sure in Manila terms uh, sounds like a, a very expensive apartment. But for Versace, maybe it's maybe it's uh, compelling well, to, to some international businessman. And to anyone in, who's listening to this in New York or watching this in New York, they're like, uh, okay, yeah, I'll take ten. I'll ta- yeah, <laughs> give me give me a few. I mean, it is interesting to you know this this sort of broader trend. Help us understand how this fits into this real estate theme that you guys undertook for this issue because you know we spoke with Justin Fox about the five over ones yeah. this is sort of the furthest thing from a, a five wow. over one uh, in in some ways how did you guys pick and choose take us inside the newsroom yeah I mean we were interested in really to begin with just anything that was interesting in the world of real estate but we we started looking at the kind of um, salesmanship of real estate yeah. and some of the kind of weird it's it's not exactly I don't think hucksterism is the right word but but the sort of like interesting ways that kind of marketing and and sales like play into real estate. And so, you know, that that kind of came into play, you know, in the Zillow story, which is all about selling your home. And right. and, and it, it comes into play in this one. Um, we also um, uh, I'm just trying to 
Well, and the and New Orleans, yeah, New Orleans. Well, yeah, exactly. It's another instance of. Um, I mean, I don't know. That's that's kind of a complicated story, but there yeah. is that element of of kind of sales and and maybe a little bit of hucksterism. Too. Well, associating yourselves ultimately either you know on purpose or by accident with a celebrity. In that case, uh, Brad Pitt. You know, I also think about Esme Dupre's story about solar paneling and the very complicated relationship. Uh, the, the or I should say the complicated economics of. Of solar panels on your roof. Right. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about doing this right now is just that we're, we were kind of in an interesting time um, in the real estate markets globally. I mean, on one hand, you know, we've, we're sort of, Pretty far removed from the the crisis. Um, on the other hand, there there are sort of signs in in some of these cities that you know apartments are not you know prices are not going up as much as they have been. Maybe you know people are starting to worry about some sort of cool down. And then on the other hand, you have you know as Peter Coy argues in his essay, you know yeah. maybe there isn't enough housing yeah. already. So it's kind of this weird moment of you know uncertainty um, coming you know about ten years. Uh, to when we had the last crash. I mean, and, and the, the sort of timing on the last crash depends on where you are in the world, but it's it's about a decade. And that's such a great point, too, because I think as we look back, as you say, a decade on from the financial crisis, most people can't tell you a lot of the details of the financial crisis, yeah. but they do know it was tied to housing. And that still has people all these years on, a, a little bit nervous. I also think it's a bunch of stories that are showing that kind of the traditional relationships or players are kind of changing. Yeah. You've got private equity getting much more involved in real estate, and we've seen that certainly, But and now you have other private equity firms kind of getting involved. Um, or you have Zillow, who used to be the place you go for the estimate, and now they're getting into buying homes. It's, so it, it's a zestimate, <laughs> It's Carol. a zestimate, sorry. But I mean, right? Like, it's changing. Yeah, yeah. Like many and, things are. And I mean, I think you, you bring up the Zillow story, and you know, one of the things that was so I think that many of people still sort of have a hangover from from the last crisis is just the uh, the ways in which sort of data and algorithms yeah. deployed mm-hmm. in ways that are not necessarily thought through can can lead to problems. Right. And with Zillow, you know, maybe it's a great business. On the other hand, they are trying to financialize this thing that you know, hitherto has basically been a person-to-person kind of transaction, and and that seems a little scary. That's Max Chafkin. And what's interesting about this story, right, whether it's Aston Martin, whether it's Porsche, I mean, that whole idea of brands kind of leveraging uh, themselves and now going into a different world, going into residences. Well, and as we talked with Max about, you know, this has become well-known when you think about the Four Seasons, you think about the Mandarin Oriental, but these brands are really uh, upping the ante there. So, Jason, you might not have noticed, but there's been a dramatic and distinct building trend that has happened over the last couple of years, and it's pretty significant when it comes to what we've seen in construction. It may have some significant implications going forward. I feel like I've noticed this mostly, you know, in my suburban life (laughs) and driving, especially around the South and in California. It's pretty amazing sort of what's underneath all of that. Justin Fox here with us. So what set you onto this story? It's a road sort of trip. The, yeah, the same thing you're <laughs> describing. I drove across the country um, because these buildings don't exist in New York City um, and for reasons that we can get into. But I was driving from New York to San Francisco and sort of, oh, that building in Columbus looks like that building in Indianapolis, which looks like that building in um, Des Moines and so on. And I actually started a Twitter thread with a bunch of pictures of them, sort of asking what. And actually, it was pretty funny. Nobody had the lots of people responded. Yeah, I've seen that, too. And nobody had the right answer. I mean, it turns out the right answer. I mean, some of it's fashion and some of it's, you know, people imitating each other. But, it you know, it's first there's demand for apartments. And second, the 
most cost-effective way to build apartments is with two-by-fours. All right, so everybody's listening and watching. They're saying, what the heck are they talking about? So they're called five-over-ones? Well, that, that's one particular. That's five floors of wood-framed building over one con- floor of concrete. Okay. Um, but they can be... I mean, there are buildings that have the general look that are only three stories high, and the, the tallest are five over two, five stories over concrete. And they're basically, I, I came across somebody on a blog comment calling them stumpies, which I'd really like to push. <laughs> yeah. That's a good Come into purpose my stumpy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm at the stumpy on the corner. Yeah. 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 But they're limited in height by building code, which is initially driven by, I mean, it's partly structural concerns that you can't build a 30-story building out of two-by-fours, um, but it's partly fire concerns. There, There is actually this movement to build taller buildings out of wood, but it's very different kind of wood. It's big, hulking pieces, not two-by-fours put up in pretty much the same way as single-family houses are traditionally built in this country. And so... As you dug into this, are there specific people, either architecturally or construction-wise, who are especially successful or have made this an especially big part of their business? I mean, I kept trying to sort of find the the group that was pushing it. And, you know, clearly there are big um, apartment developers. Yeah. There are big REITs. I mean, Avalon Bay has a lot of these buildings all over the country, but so does Equity and so does Asset. I mean, it's like it's not one particular group driving it. Humphreys and Partners in Dallas is the, probably the biggest multifamily architectural firm, and they have a lot of buildings with this look. But there are lots of buildings that look like it that aren't by them. Well, and as you say, and look, we know this in New York City with skyscrapers, mm-hmm. real estate is a herd mentality business in a yeah. lot of ways. And so, as you say, you know, imitation is maybe the sincerest form of being profitable. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of it is just that once you've decided that you're going to build a stick building, as people in the construction building industry put it, there are just certain parameters. It's not going to be higher than seven stories at most if you got the two concrete under it. And so you're going to want to design it to take up as much space as possible. And then things like the parking minimums that each city has will you know, decide how much parking, how much right. room you have to provide for parking. A very interesting aspect of this story, Justin, is the use of wood, right? And I think for a while we've gotten away from it because of some horrendous fires that have wiped out cities and areas, and actually most recently even in New Jersey here. So tell us a little bit about the use of wood. Well, yeah. I mean, basically by the early 20th century, you pretty much weren't allowed to build lightweight wood frame buildings at all in central areas of some cities. Right. And above two stories pretty much anywhere. And so, you know, it was pretty much relegated back to single family home construction and kind of bit by bit over time, partly because of innovations like fire sprinklers, which make these buildings a lot safer than they would have been before, but also just by, you know, the pushing and nudging of various building trade groups and wood industry groups and others, we've gotten to this point where you can now build five stories of lightweight wood frame. And one of the interesting things you also point out is there are essentially only so many ways to design these internally, too. And so 
probably, regardless of whether you're in Des Moines or Marietta or Cupertino, you can walk into one of these apartments. The bathroom's going to be on the left, yeah. <laughs> and the bedroom's going to be right beyond that. The kitchen's going to be on the right. This is a one-bedroom, and the um, living room, the kitchen will open up into the living room that's right beyond that. And that's that layout is everywhere. It doesn't matter who the developer is. The big apartments the in the corner. Yeah, bigger apartments in the corner, but it's really very heavily focused on one bedrooms, yeah. these things. And is it in demand? Um, They've been filling them, especially, I mean, I've heard talk when I was in Sioux Falls, where I saw a few of these buildings, they're, they're starting to have trouble filling them on the outskirts of town, but the ones that they can squeeze into downtown fill right up. That's Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox. And it's funny, that is certainly a trend hiding in plain sight. It's a decade removed from the housing bust, and yet we're still feeling many of its effects only now in different ways. And that's why this week in the magazine, it's devoted to all things real estate. Editor Brett Began oversaw this issue. Tell me about... Why now? And what was the kind of conversations you guys were having in the newsroom about? All right. So so what are the stories we need to tell? Yeah, well, we are, as you said, about a decade removed. It's, it depends on how you measure it. It yeah. also depends on where you're talking about. But roughly about a decade removed, we thought it was time to give a lay of the land and to really try to do our best assessment of how things have changed uh, since the bust. Um, how things are different now, how things might be the same, and really what were some of the long-term, far-reaching consequences of what we all went through about a decade ago. Tell me about some of the conversations that were going around, some of the stories that you were kicking about, you know, kicking around. Because, you, you know, this is when you guys reach out to the Bloomberg News organization, yeah. uh, you know, around the country. Yeah. So one of the interesting things that came up early was, hey, if you have a lot of money, now is actually a great time to be looking because you see overseas, yeah. especially in a lot of cities like London and Sydney and Dubai, um, you've got little mini crashes going on there where the price of really luxury high-end homes are down. So if you want that London penthouse or that harborside place in Sydney, um, now is actually a good time to buy. So we had some fun with that. We did. We have two spreads dedicated to that. In the it's issue. all relative, right, Brett? Relative. When we talk about this, I mean, these are Absolutely. still expensive properties. Oh, very. Right, but they've very. come down some of them by millions of dollars. I'm talking about. Uh, properties that were 55 million uh, pounds now coming down uh, to 50. So these are hardly in the reach of, of most people. But we saw we see that happening really across the world. Um, we also saw the rise of uh, sort of just staying on the topic of luxury housing, of what we call luxury branded residences. These are basically residences that are owned or at least licensed by name brands. So in 2017, for instance, Porsche built something called a design tower near Miami. Um, these things are really hard to get into. Again, they're for like really niche buyers of the upper echelons and property developers like them because they can charge a 31% markup on these oh com compared to similar um, uh, apartments. So those are, that's sort of what we saw happening at the, at the high end of the market. Um, and then we also looked at um, things that were happening more regionally. Justin Fox is a great piece about the rise of the Stumpy yeah. um, or the five over one. And this is the kind of building that you see everywhere. Who knew that this was a thing? Jason and I have talked about it in, <laughs> at our desks in the newsroom. We're like, this is a thing, I guess. Yeah, it's a thing. I mean, basically, in the early 90s, you had the building codes change in the U.S. where uh, wood that was sprayed with a retardant was considered non-combustible. Right. And it's such a small change and a thing you wouldn't think would have that major of an effect. But building with wood's a lot cheaper. And it's easier to make a mistake with wood than it is when you're pouring concrete or steel. So but it can be flammable. Can be flammable, yes. Especially in the construction process. Well, if you think back to, let's say, 1870, Chicago, right? right. 
these a lot of the rules that we had on the books stem from that time, which did not allow wood building, and those that, that's all started to sort of change. Um, so we see the rise of the Stumpy or the five over one. Uh, we also have a look at Zillow in the issue. Zillow, you know, for your Zestimate, right? Yeah. Go and see what your house is worth, or actually it's more fun to see what people you know's houses are No, no, no. Worth. I know people who will sit yeah. there just going through as they're driving yeah. and looking at neighborhoods and real estate, like, okay, so this is what that's worth. Exactly. So now Zillow went from that that sort of business to now it wants to actually buy your house. Yeah. And it's using an algorithm. And at this point, they own, with some of their competitors, about 5% of of the market in Phoenix. That's They're amazing. expected to get up to 20% there. Uh, and they offer you essentially instant cash for your house. So we're looking at Zillow. Um, we look Can at, I just say yeah. that is one of those stories, and this is what I love about the magazine, <laughs> is that, you know, you like you said, you know Zillow for this estimate, right? Yeah. But who knew that they had become such a significant home buyer at this yeah. point? Huge home buyer. Changing um, their business model and also how we buy and sell homes. Yeah, their business model is, is, is changing and evolving. Um, the stock price took a real hit after after they decided to go into this, right. because this is obviously a very capital intensive uh, business to be in. And the longer they hang on to a home and the longer they're making a mortgage payment, the more money they're losing. So they have a real incentive to buy these things and turn them around really quickly. And you do wonder in an economic downturn, you know, what they're if with that with this new model, what impact it will have on the company, and also kind of what impact it might have on the overall real estate market. It really could shake th- shake things up. I mean, if you think about the way we buy things online, there's a lot of you know instant gratification out there, and they're sort of looking at housing and saying a lot of these decisions are based on emotion. A lot of them are based on what one person living in one house thinks his or her house is worth. It's not the most effective way to to price it, right? Or is it? You know, <laughs> or has the model that we've been using all this time actually been the most effective way? I have to say one of the stories that really resonated with me in particular was taking a look at what's going on in New Orleans Yes, since Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. And I, I forgot like how many years it's been since Hurricane Katrina, a long time. And there were a lot of um, nonprofits that came mm-hmm. in along with government aid and so on and so forth, but really to try and fix some of the most devastated areas. Yeah. And when we talk about devastated areas, we talk a lot about the Lower Ninth Ward um, you had a lot of um, government agencies, as you say, come in to try to fix these things. And we focus specifically on a company called a group called Make It Right, um, which actually has Brad Pitt, the actor, as its as his backer. Um, and, you know, they went in really with the best of intentions, which was to try to build homes for people whose lives were devastated. And this just turns out to be so much more complicated and harder than you might expect. And even when you try to do things like they did, yeah. just to bring in some star, really some star architects right. to try to design these things, right. um, you can wind up with problems. And some of the homes, not all of them, but some of the homes built by Make It Right have had issues. Uh, they principally stem, but not, not all, but principally stem either from decking, um, or in a lot of instances, roofing. Uh, it turns out that in New Orleans, given the amount of rain that there is, uh, a flat roof is not a great idea. Right, because the and, water just kind of sits, right? Right, but in an attempt to make these homes look sort of aesthetically pleasing or in an attempt to make them sort of have a little bit of designer cachet, which is a nice thing to offer, right, right. they in some instances wound up having uh, problems with, um, with damage to them because of the way the roofs were constructed. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, Let's also talk about Peter Coy's article because he reminds us that here we are a decade out from the housing bust. And while some things have changed, you know, 
the housing market, you know, we might still have problems, but it might be in a different way. Yeah, it's very interesting. What we're seeing is sort of the long reach of the last crash right now. Mm -hmm. So what we're not about to have is another crash like we just did. When that happened, you had overbuilding and you had a lot of very speculative pricing uh, that really wasn't taking the overbuilding into account. That combination does not exist right now. What we actually have at this point is underbuilding. We're actually underhoused in America. And that really comes from the fact that the large builders the last time were all but almost wiped out. And the smaller builders, even if they wanted to try to build more, they really can't. They don't want to build on spec, right? They don't want to be stuck with homes that no one wants. And they can't get the loans, frankly, to build uh, at that rate. Um, So we're sort of seeing a different issue now, which is that when you don't have enough homes for people, uh, the existing stock becomes more expensive and people are getting priced out. Right. And we talk about this so often. I feel like the magazine has covered this so well, whether it's, you know, Silicon Valley, whether it's up in Portland, uh, you know, Seattle. Some of these markets have certainly gotten so expensive for many of the people who live and work there. Yeah. Uh, try San- to live there. San Francisco, um, L.A., Um, In many of those areas, in those cities, it's all but impossible for somebody to buy a house. They're Mm. just basically getting priced out of those markets. Um, And you see that sort of happening um, really in in, in, the only city in America that's considered undervalued right now. So if you're thinking about moving, uh, would be Chicago. And that was sort of even before the polar vortex. Right, right, right. (laughs) Even more so now. Even more so. But it's interesting. We talk about, okay, could we have another housing bubble? And yeah, I guess at some point, but really that's not the worry. As you said, it's the undersupply and there's a lot of other factors, right? Uh, it's a tight workforce. So builders, it's a hard thing to find workers. That's right. It's very hard to hire right now. The labor market's very, tight. The other thing that happens is with interest rate hikes, right? Mm -hmm. So as interest rates go up, if you're thinking about moving and your mortgage might be more expensive than it would have been, you're not really going to move. So when you're not moving, you're not making your house then available to somebody who would want to move. So you've got a lot of stagnancy there because of that. And I thought it's interesting too that there's that whole concept of NIMBY, like not in my backyard in terms of building. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of that has sprung up. You've got zoning, new zoning regulations that have popped up in the last 10 years. National Association of Home Builders is, is, has a lot of complaints about regulations that have sprung mm-hmm. up uh, really since the last housing crisis. And so those are definitely having an effect on the number of available lots that are even there to, to, to build on if you wanted to. All right. So some things have changed. Um, We are still, though, feeling the effects in some ways because some of those bad loans, right, have yet to be cleaned up. That's right. The government is still dealing with some of these, especially on federal housing Mm -hmm. loans. Um, Again, the long reach of last crash extends in many ways, and that is definitely one of them. There, There have been issues with some of those loans. Um, you also have not, you know, we're, we're not sort of free of bubbles here. I mean, UBS does this global listing. There are many, many, many cities that we hear about often where basically it's, it's impossible. Right. Uh, Hong Kong is, is number one in the U S uh, San Francisco actually is the only, in the only city in the top 10. That's editor Brett Began, and it was really fun to catch up with him because, you know, Jason, let's not forget, 10 years out from the financial crisis, mortgage meltdown, and it's interesting to see kind of where we have come in terms of the real estate industry. And I'm glad you bring up the crisis because Mm -hmm. that looms so large in everyone's memory. It wasn't that long ago, and yet technology especially has changed pretty radically the way we look at real estate. That's exactly what it seems like Amazon is doing. They're walking away from building HQ2, their second 
headquarters here in New York City. It's one of our most read stories, if not the most read story, on the Bloomberg. Gene Munster covers all things tech. Uh, he's a managing partner, founder of Loop Ventures, and he joins us on the phone from Minneapolis. Gene, so good to have you back with us. Um, tell me a little bit about Amazon and what they did here in pitching the cities, picking New York, and then now unpicking New York. So I think, Carol, you can um, take some issue in terms of how Amazon ran the process making a very public uh, display of going to many cities and asking for some uh, juicy benefits. Uh, very different than how Apple approaches things, where they picked four cities where their basically expansion was very, they're very stealthy, very Apple-like in how they did it. But one thought just, I think, in terms of how Amazon approached this, which might have kind of stirred the pot a little bit at the beginning, was just how they really went and asked for uh, some, some, some generous benefits. Um, that said is that it, it is what it is, and, and Long Island City agreed to this. And uh, I think at the end of the day, when you really put this together, uh, nothing really changes for Amazon, but uh, things do change for Long Island City. Yeah, and, and that's so interesting that you say that. And, and Gene, I, I do wonder, because you watch these names so closely, we've been talking to you for years, and I feel like you understand not just the financials, obviously, but really sort of the ethos around all of these companies. And and we have been hearing pretty consistently, you know, you ha you've got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez essentially declaring victory. We're sort of at an interesting moment, aren't we, between the tech companies and the public? Yes, uh, Jason. And that's the part that just doesn't feel right about all this to me, is that this could be some sort of sign that lawmakers attitude with respect to big tech is uh, evolving to kind of a negative aspect to it. I always think about what are people's motivations here? In the case of lawmakers, it's to predominantly to get reelected. And uh, there's ways to do that. One a very effective way is to pick fights with what are perceived to be bullies. Uh, the, the list is long of politicians who have successfully done that. And in this case, I think uh, big tech is kind of emerging as a bully just because it's been so profitable, not necessarily in Amazon's case, but just broadly that theme. And it's an easy way to kind of uh, gain some some um, some benefit for, from voters. But at the end of the day, is that I, I don't think uh, I don't have any uh, political piece in this. I don't live in, in New York. And uh, but it does feel like uh, the first thought that hit my mind, Jason, was that Long Island City has off their nose despite their face. This is just needless uh, self-destruction. And I'm, I'm worried that there's going to be other shots at some of these tech companies in the future. You know, it's interesting. I'm just watching one uh, Twitter post, and forgive me, I'm not quite sure. I, I mean, it looks like a reputable source, but it just talking about AOC specifically responding to criticism that by Amazon pulling out of HQ2 in Queens, 25,000 jobs were lost. And I guess she said we were subsidizing those, those jobs and that you know, maybe it would be better to give away, um, have the investments made, you know, in hiring teachers and fixing the subway. I guess what we need to understand, and there is a balance, right, Gene, in terms of giving economic incentives to attract business because that's what helps a local economy, builds jobs, you know, um, we need to kind of understand economic fundamentals of kind of what's, what generates, as I said, jobs or economic activity. Exactly, Carol. I think, I mean, let's just go to a higher level here. 
and think about how the world is evolving. It's the reason why tech companies have such massive market caps is they are slowly taking away other businesses. In Amazon's case, obviously, it started with retail, and it is evolved with some content-related and uh, AWS, and, and eventually that they're going to get more active in traditional brick-and-mortar retail. But uh, for a city to not recognize, I mean, you want to align yourself with companies that are gaining share with these rising tide themes. And Amazon is squarely on mark in terms of this, these next waves. And so, yes, I understand the, the benefit of, of uh, investing in what's very important is our R&D, our education system for our country. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty bold move to walk away from a company that is just going to be continuing to capture new areas, whether it's around healthcare or AI. Gene, just quickly, 20 seconds. Does Jeff Bezos have too much on his plate right now with all the personal distractions and so on? No, he's an assassin. He has uh, a way to compartmentalize this. And I suspect, if anything, this just charges him up to prove everyone wrong that he can power through this. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures, managing partner and founder, joining us from Minneapolis. And I love talking to Gene because he just has such a great worldview across all of tech. He understands it by the numbers, as I said to him, but he also understands the role that these companies play in society. He really looks at the whole picture. Yeah, exactly. And it's a reminder that there's so many different moving parts. It's a business story. It's a political story. It's a job story. Great stuff and something we're going to continue watching. I'm doing That's definitely what uh, investors in Akamai are saying today. Uh, Stock's up about 2% here, 70.71 a share. This after uh, earnings coming up. The stock, by the way, up about 16% so far this year. Let's get into what's going on at the company. Tom Leighton is here. He's the CEO at Akamai, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. I am saying the company right. Akamai, yes. I just remember like years ago, everybody be like, wait, do we have it right? Da, da, da. Um, you know what's so interesting? I want to talk about the quarter and then I want to talk about what you guys are doing because it plays to us a, a conversation we had with Lonnie Jaffe, a venture capitalist over at Inside Venture, just about the idea of software and how it's changing how companies do things and kind of I- impacting our economy. All right, we'll get to that in a moment. Talk to me about the quarter. Oh, we had a great quarter. Yeah. Uh, we were up over 50% on the bottom line. Our security business is booming up nearly 40% year yeah. over year. Uh, so really exciting. What do you hear from your clients? And what are their biggest concerns? And what are the, the new initiatives that you kind of need to keep on top of? Well, uh, everybody's worried about cybersecurity. Uh, you know, DOS attacks, which uh, we stopped. Uh, and that's been very successful for us. Having a site be corrupted or taken over, uh, content stolen from the site or manipulated, that's an important problem. We stop that. Are your clients seeing more of those problems? Are, are the, recur- the currents of them or the activity of them? Oh, they're happening frequent? all the time. You don't see the headlines so much because most of the big companies now use us to stop that. Uh, the most recent product is bot management. Been very successful, our fastest selling product in memory. Uh, people don't realize it, but most transactions now on the internet are not human; uh, they're bot, and uh, most of those are malicious. You know, a bot is you know, a machine that's been taken over, and it's used to try to steal your bank account, your commerce account, uh, and so we have to understand what entity is coming to the website to give the appropriate response. And just because it has your login ID and your password doesn't mean it's you, and we got to detect that. So let's talk about the blockchain, because I feel like, you know, we we talk about it, we talk around it, 
people get confused as to what it is. They conflate it with Bitcoin and crypto and all those different things. You are actually putting this into practice right uh, at the edge of this. How does it look from, from your seat? And what are your customers saying, more importantly, about how they're going to use it and what's the appetite? Yeah, blockchain is a method for making an update to a ledger, you know, authenticating that a transaction's happened, that maybe I spent a dollar for something or I gave you a dollar. And it's a way to make sure that's put into the system and recorded. Uh, it can be used to do things like Bitcoin to make a digital currency. Uh, but what we're doing is the ledger update system, and we're doing it in a way that's a lot more scalable. Uh, so that you can do millions of transactions a second and so that it's faster. So the end-to-end -end latency from when I, I swipe the card or, or push the button is two seconds and then that transaction is recorded, all the accounts are updated and, it's, and it has to be secure, of course. Uh, and so we're doing this in partnership with uh, Mitsubishi Bank in Japan. They're one of the world's largest banks, the largest in Japan. And we created a joint venture with them that will bring this to market to support the uh, transactions starting in Japan uh, in 2020. And why them? How, how did that come about? And, you know, because financial services has been one of these places that we've heard. Mm -hmm. It makes the most sense, the blockchain, uh, that is. Tell us about some of the contours of that deal. Yeah, well, actually, uh, they've been a customer of our security services uh, and web acceleration services for a long time. And they actually sought us out uh, as a partner for the mm. blockchain effort because they were familiar with our unique edge platform. Uh, you know, we have, you know, servers in 4,000 pops. Uh, we're everywhere pretty much where people are in the world. And, uh, you know, they understood that by being close to the end users and having a secure and trusted service that was really fast, we could develop a blockchain technology that could really support, uh, you know, transactions at scale. You know, and I, I think the idea is that, you know, someday all transactions will be recorded in this way. Right. And that the traditional legacy ways of doing, you know, transactions, which are slow and expensive, uh, will be updated. All right, so is it working? Have you used it? I'm curious how, how it's going. Oh yeah, we've uh, developed the technology and uh, proved you know, that it works. It's not uh, commercial yet in the sense that transactions in Japan are not using it today. Okay. And the goal is to get that to start happening in the first half of 2020. So based on your experience, because we do, and I feel like for the last couple of years in particular, we've had a lot of conversations about the impact that blockchain in particular could have on the financial community. So from what you're seeing and your work with um, MUFG, where do you expect it to go, blockchain? Will it ultimately be that every financial transaction at some point down the road will go through a blockchain? Well, that's sort of the end step. I mean, you guys probably hope, hope. <laughs> Yeah, that's what you'd but hope for. But I mean, for. do you see it realistically that that's where we're moving towards? I think so because uh, it's just, it's so much more efficient and scalable and as, as more transactions are moving online, you got to worry about security, which is a, it's a huge issue. And so I, I think you will see that you'll more and more of the transactions will start being done in this sort of a new paradigm. And is it a case, Tom, that different blockchains will ultimately be able to talk to one another? Because I, I was curious about this, that do, does the financial system, let's say for trading, all have to kind of uh, subscribe to the same blockchain? How, how will this ultimately work? I don't think they have to be the same blockchain. In fact, there's a lot of folks working on different blockchain platforms out there. No, I know, right. 
So it doesn't have to be one. In fact, that's a, a key reason why we partnered with Mitsubishi as one of the leading banks of the world, uh, because I think you need that kind of partner to really bring it to bear in a major way. So when we have a guy like you in this seat, uh, certainly someone who co-founded the, the company back in the day. I mean, it's been a pretty remarkable 20 years. This isn't what the company started out doing. Obviously, blockchain probably only existed in the the minds and the imaginations of people uh, back then. You started out doing content delivery, keep, keep me honest. Uh, what's that evolution been like? What's been the biggest sort of surprise uh, uh, along the way? You know, it's been an exciting 20 years. And believe it or not, we're pretty much on the same business plan as when we started. In fact, you can go get our roadshow slides from 99, and uh, it looks pretty close to what we're doing today which was to start with basic delivery, do video, uh, then web acceleration and application uh, management and acceleration, and then security. Uh, in fact, we tried to start our security business back around 2001, but, and it worked for the government. You know, so they bought our services way back when. But was but everybody other else people interested were like, yeah. or no? Nobody else was interested. It just took us forever. What it really took was the groups out of the Middle East bringing down North American banks at will. Uh, right. And around 2012, I think. That's Tom Layton, the co-founder and CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Akamai. And what's fascinating about someone like this, Jason, you and I love talking to these kinds of individuals. He's been in the technology world for so much, has seen a lot of different cycles. And it's interesting to see kind of where he started and now the stuff that he's focusing on. Two decades on, the company is essentially where it thought it might be, but there have been some twists and turns uh, along the way. I really enjoyed that. So obviously Blackstone, private equity, mm -hmm. Steve Schwartzman, we know the story. And yet anyone who goes under the surface, as you have, as I have, and as Stephen Gadell has, knows that this has become a real estate juggernaut. Right. And everybody's watching. You have other private equity firms following in suit. Great to have you here. So tell us a little bit about what's been going on at Blackstone. So it, you go back about 11 years, right? And they they, they had have had real estate investments for a while, but it was, it was small. It was about maybe a quarter of the assets of, of the firm. So private equity was like $75 billion, and they maybe had like $20 billion in real estate. Uh, then they get presented with this deal, right, to buy Sam Zell's equity office properties, which is a $39 uh, billion deal. It doubles, more than doubles, the size of their portfolio. And they get it in 2007, and I think almost immediately after they get it, the, you know, the signs are flashing red, yeah. right? But they still are able to get themselves out of the, 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 the properties, a number of properties at the top, make a lot of money, have a lot of cash on hand and a business there to then pick up a ton – uh, right after the financial crisis, and that launched this juggernaut. That launched this business. It's 136 billion. It's larger slightly than the private equity firm, and a private equity portfolio, and um, it's become a winner. That so much that everyone else wants to do the Blackstone model. <laughs> And it's pretty amazing, too. And, and as you say, that certainly was the, the pivotal year. I remember it well, you know, there in 2007. Mm -hmm. And as you say, John Gray, the primary architect of all this, sees everything that's happening. And he is literally selling while he's buying, yes. right? And sort of offloading that. It and could have been a disaster, this two seven. It, it could have been the worst deal of all time. It turns yeah. out to be one of the best. And then he follows that up a few months later by buying Hilton was, okay. at the peak. And... Again, for a couple of years, that looks like a disaster. He, they're able to sort of navigate. And then single family homes. And then well, single family homes. So let's talk about that. 
The single family homes? Yeah. Because I well, think everybody remembers that really well. And I think when they saw that, they're like, oh, maybe we've hit a bottom, like in terms of the worst of it. And if Blackstone's seeing opportunities, maybe there's something there. I mean, it really caught a lot of attention on Wall Street. Yeah. I mean, they made some money on the turn around. But I, also, I think it was a successful play on kind of interest rates were going to rain low for a long yes. time. It, they, they saw early on that they could produce this portfolio, which people were didn't think they could because of logistics of it. And... Um, and they could get like an 8% yield or something like that. I don't exactly know what the yield they ended up getting, but a yield that maybe if you thought interest rates were going quickly back up to five or something like that uh, wouldn't have been attractive. But they saw this low um, this low period, and they, they knew that they had a, an opportunity in front of them. And uh, others have not as been as successful, right? The other firms, some of them have had to merge. Uh, uh, they've, some others have moved on. Um, and they've really made it work. And and it's just their march through the real real estate sector, right? Now, now they're going after large properties in the Far East. They also have been recently buying um, logistics type places, right. warehouses, to make a play on Amazon. Some and news so, this week, I think, and talk this week about them buying something. Was it in India or something? I, I think I saw across as well. Yes, yeah. and they're using that to leverage it back to the private equity business. The knowledge they have in real estate, they're using back, and that the Hilton deal was a perfect um, yeah. example. Of that they're using it uh, that knowledge across teams, right? I mean, I think the problem they have, again, is other people are going to follow. Uh, there's about 300 um, million, I believe the number is. Um, no, 300 billion, sorry. There's about 900 billion total invested by private equity firms in real estate. There's about 300 billion in dry powder, right? right. And so this is a nice liquid market. They've been able to grow it quicker than you would through buyouts. But there's a lot of people who want in. Uh, interest rates look like uh, they're not going further lower, right? They're probably going higher, though, again, it may not be very fast. It's slowing down again, yeah. right? So um, the question is whether they get, this gets too crowded. Right. And also, it this makes them even bigger juggernauts, right? They're the largest owner of companies now. Uh, Blackstone is the largest, world's largest landowner. It puts a bigger target on their back for people like Elizabeth Warren and others. Right. And that's a really good point because Blackstone, again, back in 2007, they got into the crosshairs of legislators down in Washington over carried interest and tax treatment, in part because when they went public, lawmakers said, oh, my God, these guys are making just a tremendous amount of money. And as you say, this whole real estate play has been done very much in the public eye because they're buying things candidly. People understand real estate. It's been one of the underlying themes of this whole issue is sort of the buying and selling of property. Mm. Once you see that playbook, it's not that hard to copy, right? Right. And it, it, it won't be too long till you run across a story where a private equity firm bought a company, say Toys R Us or the, you know some future Toys R Us. They realize they can't make it work. It ends up in bankruptcy. Yeah. And then the workers who lost their jobs also are in private equity homes and they get kicked out. Right. And so that story of, you know, this firm just laid you off and then booted you from your house, that's not going to play well in Washington. Well, and it's further complicated, and you know this well, and you know this well, by the fact that so much of their money comes from public pensions and endowments and sovereign wealth funds. And so that becomes that much more complicated because you sometimes then have people working for a private equity company, living in a private equity house whose retirement is in some ways <laughs> dependent on those same private equity firms making money. Yeah. And if we're worried about, uh, as a number of different um, heads of large banks have put up some you know, worry signs about yeah. commercial real estate, uh, 
the nice thing about this portfolio, the way Blackstone uh, plays it, they don't like to be called a private equity firm anyway, as you as you probably know yes. anymore. They like to be called an, an investment manager, an alternative manager. They 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 like they trot out that they have this huge real estate portfolio. So um, that makes them seem more diversified. But if we're really at a top in commercial real estate, they have they have a bigger problem than maybe some of the other private equity. Broad exposure, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and I think it's interesting in terms of this this issue overall. You've got Zillow who's buying up properties, but they want to quickly get out of them. Um, Blackstone has been buying them and acting as a landlord for many years. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, and, and properties, uh, uh, large buildings, office buildings. I mean, they bought up, I think it's like five blocks in, uh, I think, Shanghai, right? I mean, they're, they're, it's not just uh, properties. They're, they're buying up parts of foreign cities. That's Bloomberg Opinion columnist Stephen Gandell. And Carol, you know I love a good private equity conversation. And real estate has been at the core of Blackstone's success of late. Right. And it's got a lot of imitators as a result. So, Jason, we know machines have been replacing man uh, for centuries. And yet the battle cry of robots and artificial intelligence and other technologies taking jobs uh, from humans has once again hit a fevered pitch. It absolutely has. One of my favorite writers in all of Bloomberg, Craig Torres, such a smart take Mm -hmm. all the time. And Craig joins us now from Washington. So how did you get turned on to this story, Craig? Well, I thought there was a big uh, riddle, Jason. Uh, you know, we keep hearing that machines are going to replace jobs. And yet last year we hired 2.6 million people and we hired another 300,000 in January. So I just started asking questions. Right. It's made for great headlines and like warning, warning, you know, your job is at risk. So tell me, you started asking questions. Who did you talk to and what did you find out? I talked to a lot of economists. I talked to a fair amount of consultants. I talked to a venture capitalist. And I talked to um, some heads of companies and chief technology officers. That's a pretty broad sample for a (laughs) story like this. And one of the things you found and and where your story starts and and one of the things I love about it is that it's very accessible in the Mm. sense that you take us right to a hospital, something, you know, for better or worse, everybody has an experience with the ER, triage. How is triage playing differently today with machines in the mix? Yeah, this was a good example. You can imagine being a physician standing in this triage position in, a, in, a, in an ER. And by the way, this is the largest, uh, most busy ER in Washington, D.C. I was there. I was down on the floor. And let me tell you, that could be a very distracting place. So what they did is they took that physician out of that position right on the ER floor and they used technology to put him upstairs a few buildings away. So instead of amid all that chaos, you walk into a very quiet room and that doctor is now talking to patients on a video monitor, looking at their medical records and coming up with an assessment and ordering tests with a, a few clicks of a mouse. It was very rapid. And they can process patients at twice the speed than they than they could on the floor. So, Craig, what did the hospital find out in terms of, you know, mankind working with machines and uh, technology? What were they able to do? Actually deal with a lot more patients much more quickly? Yes, as many as 22 patients an hour versus nine if they were standing amid all that distraction on the floor. And what happened was they tried this in a hospital where they couldn't add staff down on the floor. So if you're processing many more patients upstairs, you actually have to add nurses and technicians to do more testing and handle all this patient throughput downstairs. So it actually created more jobs because it was more productive. 
Um, I thought that was a very interesting conclusion. Yeah. So let's talk about that, because you go back to some economists who essentially say this is kind of how economies evolve, right? That's right. So one of the most interesting things I heard reporting this story was from Lonnie Jaffe. He's a venture capitalist. And he said software right now is so scalable with cloud computing and it's so inexpensive that actually it unlocks new labor models. And so it becomes more attractive for companies to hire because every new hire is working with the latest and greatest stuff. So as long as there's demand, um, it kind of tilts in favor of labor because those employees are more productive. Also, I should add, Jason, that I don't think any company I spoke with um, uh, properly estimated the costs and manpower they're using on security. We all hear of these hacks. This is a huge effort by American companies to protect their reputation. When you and I go around the internet, we're leaving all these piles of di digital information. They would like to use that to win our trust. They have to make sure that stuff is safe. It's uh, when I asked uh, uh, Noel Etter at Hilton Hotels, well, do you outsource that security? The answer is pretty much no. I need to protect that here. I need to know what's going on. And that takes a lot of people. That's Craig Torres. Now, Jason, one individual and company mentioned in Craig's story is Lonnie Jaffe of Inside Venture Partners. This is a venture capitalist who's really investing in the technologies and companies to come. And so we wanted to hear about it from an investor's perspective, this whole mm -hmm. mega trend around automation uh, and labor. Here's part of that conversation. Lonnie, how do you look at machines versus humans? So in the general economy, we're used to something on the order of 2% inflation every year. Um, give or take. And that's prices increasing. But in the technology industry, we're actually, in most sectors, there's relentless, extraordinary levels of deflation. Just as an example, in 1981, if you wanted to buy a gigabyte of storage, it would cost about $500,000. Today, it's about three cents or a little less. Wow. One sixteen millionth the cost. And what happens when prices decline that much is sometimes new business models can be unlocked mm -hmm. and even new pools of labor. So the internet, which is a very low cost, impressive piece of communication technology, allows technologies like Upwork or Etsy to allow people who are in hard to reach locations participate in the global macroeconomic system. So that's one uh, thing that can actually increase the amount of labor per capital mm. that is um, that in, and software itself just in general is becoming a much larger portion of the economy. Right. So in some of the other large industries like banking or uh, or telecommunications, there were a handful of large companies that emerged. But in software, there's just a large number of extremely big companies that are being produced. And even in industries like entertainment and retail, what you'll have is companies like Netflix or Amazon, which are software company-like DNA, will, um, will start to take over more and more of the industry. And software is very scalable. So in the old days, you would have uh, a piece of technology like a machine, and maybe a handful of people could use it to be productive. 
But with software, you can build something like Gmail and put it up on the internet, and a billion people can use it to become more productive. And so the ratio of capital to labor can actually favor labor in those types of scenarios because more a smaller amount of capital can make more people productive. I love this explanation. So that helps explain kind of where we are in this environment, right? We constantly have you know conversations about trying to understand, you know, why is it we continue to have this strong labor force, no signs of inflation, and this might help explain it. Yeah, there, there certainly is uh, a lot of software technology that is a substitute product for certain types of labor. Mm-hmm. So some ta- in, in an economic context, context, people talk about substitute goods and complementary goods. So a substitute good is something where when a new technology emerges, you might replace a human task, like a back office paperwork role. Right. Um, but then there's other... Or like tasks. getting a car. Like, well, I don't have to call somebody to get a cab, right? I can just do it via Uber or Lyft or something else. Exactly. And that um, actually cars are an interesting example of a complementary good uh, to, to follow the, um, the example, because what you have is if if battery prices go down, right, cars that are electric can actually become more valuable. Similarly, certain types of software and technology, um, as they go down in cost, the human labor that is the complementary task, like uh, uh, judgment, for example, mm-hmm. um, can actually become more valuable. There's a great book, Prediction Machines, which talks about how machine learning, which allows predictions to come down in cost, mm-hmm. can actually cause human judgment to go up in value. Well, one of the great anecdotes in Craig Torres's story this week in the magazine is about an ER and mm-hmm. triage and how with a doctor approaching it differently, virtually, in fact, removed from sort of the melee of the actual emergency room, The emergency room becomes more productive in a way that the staff actually increases to deal with the higher number of patients that are able to be coming through the door and actually cared for. Yeah. So the healthcare industry need more workers to care for them. Exactly. So so the uh, electronic medical record, the first generation of of software for hospitals, um, some of it was actually just very bad. bad software, like yeah. hard to use. And there was a promise of better record sharing or better diagnostic capability. But in reality, what ended up happening is doctors and nurses would spend hours every day uh, navigating their way through uh, hard to use software to enter in data. Right. And it actually caused a lot more labor to be needed to provide right. the same amount of care. Um, there's a new generation at Insight Venture Partners. We invested in a company called Central Reach, which is software for uh, clinics that treat autism. Mm-hmm. And it's very good software that's easy to use. And so there are some human tasks that will uh, n- no longer require as much time, like scheduling or billing. But then there's other human tasks, like actually treating the patients or students with autism. And that actually allows them to spend more time and hire more clinicians to do that. That's Lonnie Jaffe, the managing partner of Inside Venture Partners. And so, Carol, we've gotten into this habit now every <laughs> week. I love it, of going a little deeper uh, with one of those conversations. And so that chat with Lonnie Jaffe, it didn't end there. We went a little longer. Yep. For the full conversation with Lonnie, be sure to download our Business Week Extra podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can get this week's edition of the magazine. Just check out newsstands right now. Also, download the Bloomberg Business Week app. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.